We're going to have to get that professionally done, almost as professional as this podcast is about to become. What's up, Stephen Campbell? What's up, Frankie French? We got episode five, Nonprofits. Let's go. Let's do it. I prefer to call it episode fizzle, Stephen, if you don't mind. That's outside of my my realm of whiteness. Uh, that's, <laughs> so, Thank I'm, you for not trying to appropriate my culture. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's one of the things I like most about you. I'm, I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. I um, Yeah, I'm excited for who we've got today. We've got Oliver Scholars in the house. Um, Do you know why I'm so excited personally? Because per- I, I, I got to speak with Dr. Moss not too long ago. Number one, she's brilliant and wonderful. But when we, when I when we emailed to ask them to come back and come on to the podcast, she was like, I'm in exclamation point. And when people are excited to hang out with the nonprofits, beer, 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 hey. it, it makes me feel good in my heart. I like that your reenactment of her typing is is like this. Like she's just got she's got like lobster claws that she's <laughs> well, <laughs> You know, I'm not good at imitations. You know that. You know I'm not good at reenactments. I try my best. But I don't, I don't know. This isn't how you type. That's not how I type. But that's not, who am I to tell you that, that that's not the way to do things? I mean, I feel like she's so advanced that she's melded her hands into just one singular tool. <laughs> and then just, it's like almost like a, um, a Swiss army hand. And then whatever she needs, it'll just flip out of the side of one of those hands. Bam, bam, bam. Like if she's eating sushi, bam, chopsticks. Not to of- not to pop this bubble, but I think all hands are pretty much Swiss Army hands. You can you can just do all sorts of things with them. And if you want to make them chopsticks, that's not outside of the realm of possibility for most hands. You well, can just, just do this situation. My point was that she's better than us. That's what I was trying to do. <laughs> okay, agreed. I, I was driving. Agreed. <laughs> and our audience will find out very soon why we believe so. Um, yeah, so Oliver Scholars uh, here in New York City uh, and surrounding areas focuses on Latino and Black uh, students that have lots of promise that are in underserved areas. And so um, really excited to talk to them about the work that they're doing, about um, you know, how they're, how they're making an impact and how they're on the show. Well, we just, we just make people laugh. And then we just hope that we can work with people that make as big of an impact as these guys are making. So let's be honest, Steven, let's be honest here. I make people laugh. You're like window dressing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like a prop. You're a prop. I love you so much. <laughs> you muted yourself, Frankie. I did because I have where I live. I live literally right by the Pentagon and the presidential helicopters, like the government helicopters fly through here all the time. And sure. they, they're like, they're, have you seen, you've seen these helicopters, right? Oh yeah. They're like spaceships. Like they're not regular helicopters. They're like helicopters inside of helicopters. Like their rooms got rooms, you know what I mean? And they make a massive amount of noise. So I was yelling to my sister asking her very nicely to close the window for me. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, shout out to the Pentagon. If you're this close, you know they're listening. 
Well, do it. Hey, Pentagon. Yeah. <laughs> We've got we got some people streaming. We got some people listening to the podcast. We got people watching on YouTube. And then shout out to the Department of Justice. Um, <laughs> yeah. True story. What was my my uh, education like career when I was in like intermediate elementary high school? Um, I wish I had an Oliver Scholars. I didn't. I didn't grow up in an underserved community. I grew up in an overserved community. And I, w- I was one of maybe one black family. <laughs> and so I don't know if you've heard that phrase, kids are cruel. Have you heard that phrase? I mean, I understand the principle. Oh my God, Stephen, you've heard of nothing. Well, there's a common phrase. <laughs> the phrase is kids are cruel. People say it to kind of wash over their kids' bad behavior, right? Sure. Um, but did you know that it's derived from an ancient Aramaic term that loosely translates to white kids are fucking monsters. Have you heard that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I I have not heard that that interpretation either. I used to get torn. It was, this is how bad I would hide in the bathroom at lunch. Seriously. And I would, I would eat my bath, my lunch in the bathroom. What gross. Can I, you also did the act out like this for eating lunch in the bathroom. (laughs) <laughs> I think I low key, maybe high key, want to be a Tyrannosaurus Rex. I feel like, yeah. like ah! and you know, <laughs> and claim my childhood back. But seriously, I, I used to get terribly bullied, and I, I'll never forget. I grew up Muslim, right? My family was Muslim, and like my first day of kindergarten, and my my older brothers and sisters too, we had to go in a full hijab, right? Which yeah. is fine, but uh, not in white suburbia in the. Right. Like it's that, that it was not, no one knew what that even a Muslim was. Like that wasn't even a real thing. And we weren't just like regular Muslims. <laughs> no, that would be too easy to explain. We also didn't eat meat, which I don't know if you know this, but like back in the, like, it's cool now. Like, oh my God, you're vegan. Oh, oh my God. But like back then it was like, you were like an alien. Like you don't eat meat. What's wrong with you? And then like people would beat you up because you didn't eat meat. Like it was very weird. And then and one day, this is a true story. It's not even a joke. This is a true story. One day, I'm left home alone because that's what you did back in the day. You left your children, no, regardless of age, you just left them home alone. And I, I want to say I was eight years old. I was in third grade. And what I would do whenever I was left home alone, I would snoop through everybody's shit. Like, that's what I would do. <laughs> I would go room to room, like the Grinch that stole Christmas. And I would just snoop through everyone's things and take whatever it was that I wanted to stockpile in my room and play with later. Um, And I had gone through every room and I was down to my brother's room. I had two two older brothers and their room, first off, let's just say it smelled terrible. Crunchy socks as far as the eye can see. (laughs) Gross. All right. So I'm snooping through there and I I don't see much, right? I see a couple of Legos, a He-Man doll, some like old train tracks. But then as I'm leaving, I'm like, ooh, I should look under the mattress. And you, know, you remember Pulp Fiction? Remember that scene where they pop the briefcase open and mm. the light shines out? Remember <laughs> yeah. that? This was exactly like that. I lift the mattress up and it was like, hallelujah. There were porno magazines under there and packets of lunch meat. I kid you not. Gross. That's the trifecta. I was Very like, thing. <laughs> yeah, was it hot mattress meat? Sure, but I had never <laughs> eaten meat before. <laughs> I'd never eaten meat before. So to me, this was like I had found like a secret treasure trove of Wagyu filet mignon. You know what I mean? Like it was like the upper crust, upper echelon of meat. 
to me. And so I went and I grabbed my uh, strawberry shortcake backpack and filled it to the hilt with meat and porn. I kid you not. I kid, I kid you not. My books, I don't need those. School supplies, what's that for? I didn't know how, Stephen, but I knew this was going to make me popular at school. I didn't know how, but I just had a feeling because they were cool, right? So I filled up my backpack. Next morning, I'm out the door, like 6 a.m. I'm, I'm gone early. Nope, don't eat breakfast. And I'm out the door. I'm walking to school. And I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty cool, right? And I'm like walking down the street like, you can tell by the way I use my words. I'm a woman's man. No time to talk. You can't look. I'm very excited, right? Like the worst Oscar Myers Wiener, Oscar Mayer Wieners commercial ever. The worst one. The worst one. And I'll, I'll never forget, I sat behind uh, one of the houses on my way to school because I had never seen porn before. And when I opened my backpack to check out the porn, I was like, oh, snap, there's lunch meat in here. I could try meat, too, while I'm, while I'm looking at the porn. This is, is, it's just nothing good happens in this story, right? So I'm sitting on the side of some random white person's house, packing up, and it's not even like the good lunch meat. It's not even like deli meat. No, 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 no. You ever, see, you ever been so poor that you had to get like that uh, lunch meat in the plastic containers. It's like in a plastic oh, yeah. Ziploc bag and it's super, super thin and it's oily and salty. Where, where they've got bologna, but they spell it phonetically. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. It's with a Y on it. Yeah, it's like right. an right. And it's so thin, you can't like actually pull it apart. You just got to kind of rip chunks off of it and like smash it down into the bread. Ugh. It was that stuff. But when I tell you it tasted like filet, like, oh, I was like, I put it in my, I remember opening and going, oh, and then I pulled off a chunk and I was just like, mm-hmm, and I'm licking my fingers, gross, right? And I'm looking at the porn, I was horrified, but I'm like, if I want to see porn, I know other eight-year-old kids definitely want to see porn. So I got to school and I found Dwayne Tenney. Dwayne Tenney, I, I'm using his real name. You know why? Because he was awful. He should not have been with the rest of the kids. He used to terrorize us. He would spit at people and throw. He was horrific. All right. But I'm like, hey, Dwayne, psst, come here. And Dwayne comes over and I open my backpack. And again, the light, hallelujah. And I'm like, look, I'll give you a whole page for free. Tell all the other boys, meet me at my cubby in 20 minutes. And I was at my cubby selling a peak for 10 cents and a page for 25 cents. What? Entrepreneurial? Yeah, I think so. And I was just at the cubby like a peak, a page, 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 a peak, a page. By lunchtime, I was a freaking porn mogul, dog. By <laughs> recess, I was suspended. Why? Because white people tell. And that's all I really want to say. <laughs> About about my educational history. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all about the soft skills that you learn in in school. Is, is really what it's all about. I um, so I grew up in in a in about a fifty fifty uh, white and Mexican area around LA, and so uh, my first friend, first friend ever in preschool, his name was Ricky. And uh, Mexican dude that like, you know, I, it was like my, my intro into Mexican culture. I met my first, like, like went, it went to like, you ever, you ever go, like you lived in LA for a little bit. Do you ever go to like a cookout, like for with, like a Mexican family, just uh, tons of carne asada, tons of just, just tequila. And it was wonderful. Um, but so Did when I was growing corn? What's that? Did they have the corn on the stick? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
That's my jam in the summer. Um, but so when I was growing up, uh, there used to be happy hour car chases, right? So <laughs> I need to explain that. <laughs> so uh, around LA, there around four o'clock in the afternoon, a car would be taking off from a police officer. There would be a helicopter watching. And it was like, I have these fond memories of me prepping dinner with my mom at like nine years old and just watching <laughs> car chases. And you would always root for the bad guy, right? Like you, you wanted the guy to get away and you just kind of had the police, of course. <laughs> well, and, and you just kind of want the underdog to win. Like you're going to start a chase in rush hour in LA and try to get away from the police. Like good luck dog. And so one day I'm, I'm watching this dude is, is in and out with a little white civic. And I'm just like, this dude needs to get away. And so um, what I came to find out was he had just murdered Ricky. Right. And so, so he had Ricky was, Ricky was, was like playing like GoldenEye, like a first person shooter game in his living room. And then somebody came in first person, shooted him. And so, um, and so man, this is your friend. Yeah, yeah, it's Ricky. It was the first friend that I had. Oh and my so, God. You had a very different education experience than I had. Yeah, lots of death. And so, um, yeah. so Ricky, it, so basically it was, it was over some gang stuff, right? So Ricky's sister was dating a dude that was high up in Westside Locos. And so it, he, she dumped him. He came and uh that was that was the uh retribution i guess you would say that's crazy and so i was watching the car chase and and i'm telling you it it ruined car chases for me frankie um and so i i but so because of that so that was in seventh grade and so that was my first friend that was killed to gang violence but like a lot were to come and so um, and so i went to the funeral right and so like i was basically the only white dude at the funeral and um that was when i first got into giving eulogies so like i i give a mean eulogy right it's a very basic a format minute, right sorry, you tell David, us i don't mean to interrupt you but you said this is what you got into which leads me to believe this was like the first of many eulogies <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i've given 20 something eulogies but so um I, I, there's a format, right? So you give a story about the person and then you say a characteristic that that story tells you about that person and then how everybody's going to go off into the world and take that characteristic to live on with that person. Right. And so it like, I equate it to like, almost like the, 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 uh, open mic comedy scenes where I watch people go up and give the eulogies. And like, while most of it was in Spanish, I was, I could still tell like, these guys public speaking is not great. I'm going to go up there and I'm going to go show them how, how a eulogy is really done. And so that was the first eulogy. And then I just started, I started killing the eulogy scene, right? Because like whenever there was a funeral, Stephen was there and I, and I would just give the most baller eulogies. If you think like, if you think making a group of people laugh that are already happy is, is hard, make a group full of people crying laughing is so easy. Like it's, they, they want that pressure release. And that's all the comedy really is, is like, how do you release that pressure? So everybody's in there, they're sobbing. And then you would just tell them like a little like anecdote and people would be like, Oh, that was great. So I ended up becoming real close with the Mexicans and like some of the Latin gangs. And then I was like, just by my sheer whiteness was 
like affiliated, not affiliated, that's just, that's not strong, uh, with the white supremacist gangs. So like, I just knew them via whiteness adjacent. And so I used to have to like mediate fights between the Latin gangs and the white power gangs. I just see and you so in a like, suit and tie with like a briefcase. I wish it was that formal. No, we would drink King Cobras behind the gas station. And then I would go up to the whites afterward or before. And I'd be like, here's a deal. Uh, no knives and just let one on one fight. Yeah. And so like, I would like pat people down before the, before the fight started and just like, kind of like take that up. Um, so I don't know, I don't know what that says um, about me, but that is, that is kind of the schooling that I grew up around. So in that school, only 40% made it to senior year. Only 23% oh, wow. of them went to college. I'm and sure so, you had a death call as well. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, you, you don't, when you're in it, you don't really realize how horrible it is. And it's just kind of the way of life. But you like, when you look at it retrospect, like in retrospect, you're just like, how was a kid supposed to? Mm-hmm. What happened? I have no idea. Um, the Latin Kings heard your comments and they're like, allegedly, Stephen, allegedly. So <laughs> now they're coming through your speakers. But you know what the interesting thing is? Hmm. Uh, someone watching this show, right? And just looking at you and looking at me. They would assume if they if they heard these two stories, like just read these two stories, like in a paper or whatever, they would assume that the first story belonged to you and the second story belonged to me. Well, the reason that the reason that I bring it up is most of my Mexican counterparts didn't make it out. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Whether that whether that what that looks like, if it looks like incarceration, if it looks like death, if it looks like drugs. And, and a lot of my less fortunate uh, white counterparts didn't make it out. I was very lucky that like my parents forced me to go to college, right? The day I graduated was you're kicked out if you don't go to school. And Mm -hmm. so while I still grew up in that space and I still did have the uh, exposure to that space, call it privilege of whatever sort you want to call it, but the privilege is what did afford me the opportunity to get out of there. And I do know like my city, 2013, 14 was most drug overdoses per capita of any city in the country. A shout out to Simi Valley. If anybody's listening, Um, we got the Ronald Reagan library and lots of drug deaths. It's the war on drugs. And then uh, and drugs won. Okay. Yeah. Right. But, um, but the reason I bring it up dollars is so important. You know what I mean? Because they're they're getting these kids before those they experience. Well, not before they experience those things, but they're getting those kids and giving them an avenue to do something greater with their life. And it does require a very special support system to that of people that have that sort of empathy and acknowledgement of of what they're going through. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I say all that though it's not the funniest of stories, but it is kind of a thing where I really appreciate the work that they're doing and understand the necessity for it. And I guess that that's a pretty good intro to to bring our guests on. Yes, it is. You wanna do the honors, Frankie? Oh my God, I would love to. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, 
You've heard enough from the nonprofits. Now let's talk to our nonprofit Oliver Scholars, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome the wonderful folks from Oliver Scholars, Dr. Danielle Moss, Gabrielle Gilliam, and Joanna De Jesus. Ladies, 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 we are so honored and happy and excited to have you guys here. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Moss, Joanna, how are you doing? Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. Here, give it one second. I think the, Jared, are are we all screened up? Boom. Are we all screened up? There we go. There we yeah, go. it's just all right. Welcome, ladies. Welcome, welcome. I'm sorry, Gab- Gabriella is not on on screen. So we have Joanna De Jesus and Dr. Danielle Moss. I love saying that because I love when I see black women just killing life, like just murdering <laughs> life. It brings such a joy to my house. I'm, my heart. I'm out here trying to do a little something, Frankie. You're not. <laughs> don't don't diminish. Yes, you were doing the most, and I love it. I love it. If you're going to go to school and get that doctorate, I would, I would be pushing it into conversation whenever I absolutely could. Just at Starbucks, they're like, "Who is it?" It's like, "Oh, it's Doctor Moss." Scream out, <laughs> Doctor. You know, I, I have to say that I was a little shy about um, making the transition from Ms. to Doctor, sure. um, but it was actually young people that I was working with who um, I was at another organization at the time in Harlem and my students were like, Oh no, Mm-mm. everybody, we're going to make everybody call you doctor, um, you know, because so many of them, uh, you know, did not have those role models um, outside of our organization in their life. So um, mm-hmm. with that, I, I use it as much as I can. Shout out to Dr. Bill, J- uh, Jill Biden. Yeah. Yes. You keep using your doctor. Okay, yes. because um, there's a lot of hazing involved to to get the, to get those uh, initials. So, and can I ask Dr. Moss? So, um, maybe we go a little retroactively. So, what is your role right now with all of your scholars? And then uh, a little bit of background of of where you've come from, how you got here. Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, let's see. What was your question again? First, first, what is what is your role now? Role. With, and oh, then, yeah, that. Sure. <laughs> I got so caught up in the conversation leading up to this moment, quite frankly, but I'm a little <laughs> bit off my game, but, uh, but I got you. Um, so I am Dr. Danielle Moss, and I'm the CEO of Oliver Scholars. Um, oh, wow. I have been working in the nonprofit sector for a few decades, um, definitely a little bit older than a lot of people think I am. I started my career as a middle school teacher in the Bronx. Shout out to the Boogie Down Bronx. Um, <laughs> then I had an opportunity to work with another nonprofit um, serving high-risk students in Bed-Stuy. Um, and I just, you know, I kept coming back for young people, for the kids. And so, um, you know, this is where I found my niche, my home. Um, I started out uh, graduate school thinking I was going to be a school principal. And then I realized that there was not a lot of freedom within bureaucracy. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I fell in love with this sector and um, I've been fighting on these streets ever since. Um, I've actually been pretty aware of Oliver Scholars for a long time, uh, uh, having worked in the college access space. Um, It's an amazing organization founded in 1984 by a gentleman named John Hoffman, um, who actually had a tennis program 
um, and had some some young kids in his tennis program. But he himself had attended the George School, um, which is a boarding school, and um, reached out to the admissions folks to say, I have some really talented kids, and I know if they go to public schools, they're not going to have the opportunity to play tennis competitively in a New York City um, public school. Um, And that was kind of like the beginning of everything. Those students went on to do amazingly well. um, And that admissions uh, counselor told other admissions counselors that John was doing this work. Um, Someone paired him with a a superintendent from Queens named Albert G. Oliver. That's where we got our name. Um, And so uh, Superintendent Oliver really helped him to shape the initial uh, program, and he named the organization after him um, following his uh, untimely um, death. Um, And so over the last 36 years, we have graduated um, about 1,200 black and brown students. Wow. We've gone on to do amazingly well. Um, Shout out to Joanna, who's here, (laughs) representing the family. Um, And so, you know, I would say that our kids are already high potential, high performing students. And this is where, you know, the importance of this work gets missed so much. Um, Black and Latino students are 60% less likely, regardless of their grades, to be identified for gifted and talented programs. Uh, and teacher bias is actually the primary reason um, they don't get those referrals. And even when black and brown students have score test scores that are identical to their white and Asian counterparts, they are still 20% less likely to be referred by school teachers and administrators for gifted programs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that the talent isn't already there, regardless of the circumstances. There is uh, a lack of commitment in my Uh, opinion to really harness the full potential of a lot of kids in New York City. You know, I think most kids are, you know, just waiting for someone to say, I believe in you. Here's an opportunity. Um, This is the way that you get from point A to point B. Um, New York City right now is one of the most segregated public school systems in the country. It's also the largest. Um, Today? Currently today. Definitely one of the most segregated. New York City is more segregated than some Southern school districts, actually. Um, So, uh, you know, and and we know that. Um, And so what we aim to do is really to help to support and uplift the next generation of Black and Brown leaders. Um, And our alumni go on to do amazing work in nonprofits and education uh, but they're also in finance and private equity, and we have college professors. Um, wow. Just to give you a little taste of how amazing our kids are. Um, our early college admissions so far this year for early decision, we got Harvard, we got Columbia, we got NYU, um, we got Colgate University, we got a posse scholar going to DePaul University. I mean, they pull it out the gate. And I, and I have to tell you that during this pandemic, Black and brown students um, saw a 32% decrease in their college enrollment in the fall. Um, A lot of those kids are getting jobs to help support families. Um, A lot of those kids just had a lot of economic instability. They didn't know if they would be able to pay for college. So the fact that, you know, because of the work that we do, our kids really have not missed a beat, Um, despite having missed graduation, missed prom, 
all of those um, milestone celebrations um, that so many of us, I didn't go to prom, y'all, um, generally <laughs> look forward to. <laughs> Can I ask a um, question, Dr. Yeah, Mark? sure, absolutely. And th- this may be silly, and my apologies if it is. So Oliver Scholars is a program to support while in school, or is it a school that these children matriculate at physically? That's a great question. So we identified gifted and talented um, black and brown middle school students. um, And then we work with them through middle school to help them get into the nation's most competitive private day and boarding schools. So about 50 school. And about 50% of our kids um, are at either day private schools or public schools. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So you get them into the school, the the better schools. Mm-hmm. I hate to say it that way, but yeah. And support them while they're there. Yep. And support them while they're there. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And there's a and, big difference in schools for sure. For sure. Oh, yeah. And then Joanna's Joanna. one of those people who supports the kids while they're uh, in, in private schools. Can we hear Joanna? Hi. Hi. Hello. Thank you uh, for having us. My name is Joanna DeJesus. Um, So I, my, my, my brother and I both did Oliver Scholars. I'm an alumna of Oliver Scholars. Um, I was in the program. I graduated high school in 2013. So I was, I went through the program in 20, I don't know what's 2013 minus four, um, (laughs) 2009, 2008, around there. Um, and my older brother also went. I wound up going off to um, boarding school in Connecticut and then um, went and did my uh, undergrad in Macaulay Honors College at Queens College in New York um, and then took a year and did AmeriCorps and then um, went to grad school uh, at UConn, graduated this past May and found my way back to, yes, thank you, found my way Just back. graduated in June. Yes. <laughs> Um, thank you thank you I found my way back to Oliver um actually I'd never really fully was not connected to Oliver over the years I volunteered I um worked as a counselor for our summer program um just always remained connected and in November of last year um I became a part-time employee as a scholar counselor on the scholar services team um and went full-time when I graduated so I'm on the scholar services team a scholar counselor which means essentially um once our kids are placed our scholars are placed I get a caseload of my own um kids and I check in on them um holistically not just academically and make sure that they're supported right because we not only do the the academic preparation and and um, support them there but we also want to make sure because of that transition, we've talked so much about the fact that they're coming from public schools that are oftentimes predominantly uh, Black and Latino, um, and then they're transitioning to predominantly white institutions. And so mm-hmm. we kind of have a lot of conversations about identity and microaggressions and all the things that uh. they may potentially face when they attend their new schools. Um, and we, we really have those conversations. Actually, starting in, um, in their eighth grade year, um, I also teach a class. Uh, with our with our with our eighth graders that begin to talk about those things so that's huge I know growing up I didn't we didn't I didn't have that support my first day in kindergarten uh, the most adorable blonde hair blue-eyed little boy so cute walks up to me grabs my pinky fingers bends them backwards spit in my face and called me the n-word and told me to go back to Africa and no one helped me yeah I'm not I'm not kidding this is kindergarten my very first day of kindergarten um and no one helped me. 
and I remember I was too, I felt embarrassed to even tell my family when I got home, I was too embarrassed. And I felt like I was just like, not here. I just didn't feel like I was a part of anything where I could go even into someone in the school. So having that kind of support. And I remember as I grew up and got older, um, I'll never forget this, a friend of mine who I'm actually still friends with today, uh, after a long hiatus, but we were walking one day and he says to me, he says, you know, you're, you're like us. And I said, what, I said, what do you, what do you mean by that? And he goes, well, you're, you're not like really black. You're like, <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're like us. And that's why you're so cool. And I remember snapping out of that feeling. And I had felt this way my whole life, not, you know, just wanting to belong. I want to belong. I want to. And the first time he, the first time he said it, I was like, oh, I felt prideful. Like, oh, he, he thinks I'm like them. Then when he reiterated it and I was like, well, that's no better than being like, I remember feeling shame and hurt and anger and, you know, just enraged. So having that kind of support, that cultural support is huge. You know, it's, it's huge. It directly affects your ability to do well in school for sure. So that's amazing. I think it has everything to do with how you see yourself as a young person. And it's so interesting because, you know, when I went to independent school, it was kind of like, oh, look at this great opportunity there. Good luck. Um, And I think, you know, oh, but, you know, what I did have in the secret sauce was a mother. Um, So, you know, my my first school experience was actually a black nationalist elementary school. Oh, wow. Um, I always tell people that, my early education wasn't about anti-whiteness. It was more about the absence of whiteness being centered in my education. It's really centering the experiences, validating the experiences and contributions of African-Americans in a way that built a foundation that for me has been unshakable. Um, But I think if you don't have that kind of intentional preparation, um, when you do experience things that you know are wrong, don't sit well with you, you have no way of responding appropriately. Mm-hmm. We, we did that with my daughter, not necessarily, not sending her to that type of school, but in home. I remember she was probably in second or third grade and she came home very upset. And she told me, Steven's laughing because he, he knows my daughter and she's a very interesting human. And she came home and she's very upset. And she said, mommy, I didn't like the way they made me feel when they were talking about slavery in class today. And I had never thought of, I never put that, that, you know, my finger on that. Cause I always felt the same way too. When they were, cause that's the moment when everybody looks at you. At you! I just can't wait to say it. Everyone in the class turned around like, so what's slavery like? You know what I mean? It's like they, they legit- Been there, done that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, but I had never been able to verbalize that or really even, she's way smart. I'm, I'm not, I wasn't that bright when I was younger. She's way smarter than I was. Anyway, um, she says to me, she goes, I want to know more about black history. Can you be my black history teacher? Oh, that you is know? epic. Yes. That's crazy. So I hope you know, you're handling your business, Frankie. I mean, can I say handle can I say your that? business? A couple, a, a week ago or so, Frankie and I were on a zoom call and I was like, uh, I'm reading John Lewis's biography. And then I hear a little voice in the background, just like, John Lewis, who's that? And Frankie's like, absolutely not. You're writing me a one-page book report on John Lewis this second. <laughs> and she, it just made her go into, into a room to just write a, write a report on him immediately. 
Because because I bought her, she has the his whole graphic novel. She got it when she was in like fifth grade. And so she knows very well who he is. And I'm like, for you not to recognize that name when you hear it, I'm not doing my job and you weren't listening. So I need you to go you know, <laughs> drop me down an essay real fast. She did it, Stephen, by the way. She did it. It was very good. good. Yeah. It was, um, it was Joanna, good. do you want to talk a little bit about SIP? Because the curriculum yeah, does a great I think job at addressing all of that. I was going to, I was just going to share too that um, I grew up in a household that, I mean, my, I'm, I'm Puerto Rican. Uh, or rather, New Yorkian. Um, yes, girl. I say that because I was, I was born in New York, and I, I think we're a different breed. Um, but yeah, I grew up in a house that was like that. So when I went off to my boarding school, that was a predominantly white institution. Um, it was like shocking. I was like, oh my goodness. And I, I'm also super outspoken. I've always been very loud and outspoken. And I think just reconciling those differences of who I was and my identity and trying to find my space. And I'm so grateful. Like I look back on being able to connect back with Oliver, connect with my peers there and just kind of like find myself through them and, and work through that um, was really helpful. But in terms of SIP, which has uh, um, gotten much more intense since I was in it. Uh, but we do five weeks over the summer. Um, four weeks we do typically at a day school. And the fifth week we take them off to a boarding school so they can get that experience. Um, and then they do Saturdays. And that, the, that summer program is from seventh to eighth grade, then Saturdays throughout eighth grade. And then they do the summer again from eighth to ninth grade. And so it's super intensive. Um, they take classes that are, um, not just like core academic classes, STEM, uh, math, um, English, uh, when they're doing their applications, they'll take like test prep courses as well. Um, and then we teach a class, um, I teach a class called Critical Conversations uh, that that centers around talking about identity um, and how students identify. We talked about different identifiers and just how they identify and really generally I provide them definitions and really let them start to think for themselves. Mm -hmm. So that way, when they get into a space, um, it's not the first time they're thinking, well, how do I identify racially? Mm -hmm. Uh, my gender, my sexuality, like how do I identify personally? So that way when you do get into a space, nobody can tell you otherwise. Like that, right. that's like the biggest thing is just empowering them. Um, and they, you know, I think initially they, right, um, Dr. Moss and I were talking about how they, it's very stressful when you're in that. And then a year later, they'll be in ninth grade and they're like, I miss Saturday Academy or, you know, I miss being with my SIP, Scott, uh, you know, my SIP, you know, people, especially, and I got to give a shout out to, the current uh, ninth graders are class of 2024 because they had to go remote and they have essentially done oh, yeah. so much remote their freshman year remote um, and they have worked through it and really worked to connect with each other and, and learn what it is like to connect with people virtually um, and build those bonds and learn their academic learning, but also like learn from one another and, and learn to be a part of a whole new community and make new mm -hmm. friends. So. Do you find, so one of the things that growing up, it, it was very hard to pull somebody out of an existing network. Do you know what I mean? Whether that is just general troublemaking at school or, or it's something as serious as gangs and stuff like that. Um, do you find that there's a lot of friction when when you're have when you have a kid coming from public school into these private schools i don't know oh what? go ahead go no ahead. i was gonna say the first thing that comes to mind is um 
one thing I know, I think about my case or the kids, the kids that I've worked with is they, they want this, like they are thirsty, they are hungry and they, they put the work in. I mean, I know, um, I think, I think of a couple names that pop into my head of scholars that, um, they put themselves, they nominated themselves into the program and they wanted to be here. And they're like, they're the ones that are really, um, sort of navigating this process. And so I, I, I think that Th those are the first groups of kids that come into my mind are sometimes um, another challenge in terms of friction is just um, academically right where they come from being top students high honor roll in their um, public schools and then we're presenting a whole different level of academic rigor yeah. that and I, I mean I think that speaks to kind of the inequality of education is you know public schools and the academic that they're doing and then we're presenting them with a whole different level so that we're, pre we're preparing them for their independent schools um i think there's friction there is like the realization that like you are probably going to get an f sometime during your high school career at your independent school yeah how do you pick yourself up from that how do you ask for help for help when you need help um but yeah I, that's where i see those areas of friction dr moss yeah, so I, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I can't speak for all of our students more broadly, but I know that some people who do this kind of work have this notion that we are plucking kids out of communities that um, are bereft, that have no value, um, that don't have much to offer them, and, and presenting them with this incredible um, light-filled alternative. And I think one of the things that made me want to take this role was that Oliver has never quite had that position. Um, you know, we are built on three pillars, leadership, scholarship, and service. From the time they walk in the door, it's like you are not just doing this for yourself. You're doing this for your family. You're doing this for your community. And you're going to continue to reach back and bring whoever you can along with you. Um, and I think in some ways that can seem a little bit heavy. But, you know, the reality is that these kids are coming to us already um, with some potential, right? So there's something good happening in their communities, happening in their families, happening in their schools. Um, and we have to really build competency and language around recognizing the assets of even the most challenged neighborhoods and communities. Um, sure. Because, you know, good things grow in all kinds of soil, um, Sure. And so we, we want people to not have a sense of shame about the fact that they don't have the same resources. Because um, I think, you know, sometimes for our kids, class is much more um, unnerving than the racial and cultural differences, right? Mm -hmm. We are talking a level of wealth, the likes of which most of our kids have never, didn't even know existed. Mm -hmm. um, and so you know, making sure that they feel hold, whole, feel centered, and understand that they come from something rich and valuable, mm -hmm. um, regardless of their financial circumstances, I think is a really important lesson to impart. And I think that's why so many of our alumni go on, if they're working in the corporate sector, they're volunteering in nonprofit organizations, they're giving back. As an organization, our kids just did a virtual sing-in uh, for a, a nursing home in New York City. So it's this idea that, yes, you're getting opportunities, but you're always thinking about how to bring value back to your community. I, I love that. I think, um, I think we have about four minutes left. Um, so what I would love, if you guys could share, where can people find Oliver Scholars? How can they donate? How can they get involved? 
Sure. So we're at Oliver Scholars on Instagram, um, on LinkedIn, uh, on Facebook, um, OliverScholars.org to donate, to volunteer, to nominate a student. Nominations for seventh grade students are still open until I think mid-January. So if you know a talented young person who lives in the five, one of the five boroughs of New York City, um, you know, a lot of our public school partners are are being challenged right now in terms of like getting their nominations in time. So we want to make sure that everyone in all of our communities knows that they can nominate a student and really put them on this incredible path and journey um, towards success. My whole family is out there. So I'm going to reach out to my cousins, like, look, girls, boys, y'all need to go ahead and reach out to Oliver Scholars and get my baby cousins in there ASAP. <laughs> One of the things you I also, take good care of your cousins. I, be, I believe that in my whole heart. One of the beautiful things too that I love um, is teaching them empowerment and being able to advocate for themselves. I didn't have that. You know what I mean? Like I was very socially retarded in a lot of ways growing up and always very nervous. And that's one of the things I really instill in my daughter. When she has issues in class, I don't call her teacher. I tell her, you need to send them an email. Here's how you write it out. And this is what you need to say. And when they respond, we'll talk about it. And then we'll go from there. So I'm not going to always be with her. And so she needs to be able to speak up and speak out and advocate for herself and empowering these kids in this way, because usually Black kids and and, and brown kids, we don't get to grow up. Why? Because when we're about mm, second, third grade, our parents have to sit us down and give us the talk about the world and what the world expects from us and how we can stay safe. So we our our childhood gets snatched away. I would much rather have our, our children's childhoods be snatched away in a positive way. And what I mean by that, yes, it's your responsibility to reach your hand back and bring up the next generation. That is so beautiful. Thank you, Oliver Scholars. Thank you so much, Dr. Moss. Thanks for having Thank us. You. Oh my God, shut your face. Shut your faces. Come back and back and back and back. Um, speaking of, so in February, uh, Frankie and I and nonprofits, we are uh, having a February initiative where we are raising a lot of money for different Black-oriented causes. And it looks like in the first week, we'll be talking to you guys again. So the first Tuesday of February. I'm black, so I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, just okay, in perfect. case you hadn't noticed. <laughs> That was, that was the que- that was the question. So so thank you. <laughs> um, but we will be having you guys on again, and we're going to be raising a lot of money for you guys. And I'm very excited to continue that conversation. I think we're only scratching the surface about uh, you know this episode about the work that you guys are doing. But I'd love to get a little bit more into the environment that creates um, it, the environment that exists that has been created by other external forces and what we can kind of do together to combat those a little bit. Um, Joanna, thank you so much. Dr. Moss, I sincerely appreciate you guys. And uh, we'll talk to you guys again real soon. Episode five, Nonprofits. My name is Stephen Campbell. I'm Frankie French. And again, this is Nonprofits. Tonight we're at six, but every Tuesday, 6.30, Comedy Hub's Twitch channel. We'll see you guys next week. Love you guys. Thank you so much. Peace. Take care. Thank you. Bye. I I think I oh I never know when we are completely off the air. But-